it might be too much to say that cannabis is recession-proof, but it's certainly recession-resilient. Hi, this is Vivian Azer, Cowan's Beverages, Tobacco, and Cannabis Analyst. Delighted to be joined by John Kagia, who is the Chief Knowledge Officer of New Frontier Data. Hey, John. Hey, Vivian. Delighted to be here. Oh, my gosh. It's been a great South by Southwest. Thank you so much for doing the panel yesterday. No, my pleasure. Thank you for moderating. And so excited to, to be podcasting with you. I think New Frontier Data might be new to some institutional investors, but we love data. So talk to us about what New Frontier does. Thanks very much. So New Frontier Data is a market research, data analytics, and intelligence company focused exclusively on the legal cannabis industry. Um, so since uh, 2015, um, we have been collecting data that spans the entire cannabis industry. We don't focus on any singular aspect of the market, um, but rather we view ourselves as the umbrella under which the entirety of the industry's data ecosystem can exist which means that we're collecting data from cannabis consumers. We, we do uh, at least one annual US-focused cannabis consumer survey with up to 7,000 respondents. We collect data through point-of-sale platforms, which gives us really good insights into the retail intelligence uh, or the trends on the retail side. We collect data from every government that is publishing data at the federal and state level, every government agency that is collecting data at the federal and state level, uh, which allows us to understand everything from tax rates to medical participation rates to um, how law enforcement and prohibition enforcement are going to things like drunk driving levels and uh, the state's uh, cannabis DUIDs in the states that are tracking it. So it's a really broad portfolio of, of data. And part of the, the benefit of this is that it allows us to understand the linkages of how, whether it's policy outcomes, industry trends, uh, retail developments are impacting different aspects of the industry. Um, we squeeze the balloon on one side of the, of the market and we'll be able to see the impact that it has on the other. That is fascinating. I'll tell you, like personally, I love covering cannabis because it's like my other coverage in beverages and tobacco, highly regulated, highly taxed, which means, you know, from a public data source perspective, it is very, very robust in terms of the disclosure, which, which makes our job a little bit easier, despite the dynamism in cannabis. I mean, it might be a little uh, cavalier to say anything is easy in cannabis. <laughs> But we, we, th we take the same approach as you, right? We, we look at things top down and, and bottom up. And you know the top down perspective, I think is, is the most challenging because you're always trying to understand kind of the evolution in, in regulatory reform. But I understand that you guys have just done some new top down work. Let's talk about that. Yes, so, so in our newly released US Trends Report, um, we've been producing this report annually for, for the past seven years. And in it, we're looking at the state of the U.S. industry. And central to that is trying to understand where the industry currently is, so um, what the size of the market is right now, and how large, we, uh, based on current growth trends, we expect the market to be. In this case, for the first time, we're actually forecasting it out to 2030. So making quite a number of new types of assumptions uh, than we used to previously make when we were only doing this as a five-year projection. But we feel like we have accrued enough data that enables us to, to stretch a little more in terms of our thinking of where this market could grow. So in this new report, um, by our latest estimates, in 2021, the industry did uh, roughly $27 billion worth of sales. Um, we're expecting that to increase to um, a, around $32 billion by 2022. Um, that will increase to 
52 billion by 2030 just in the states where it's currently legal. Um, but we are anticipating, based on the way the legislative environment is evolving, that we could potentially see an additional um, 18 states, uh, nine medical, nine recreational, pass uh, uh, market activating laws in the intervening eight years. And if we picked up those potential states, uh, by 2030, this could be a $72 billion industry. Got it. And do you assume any kind of federal legalization? We don't assume federal legalization in that model. We have a separate model for federal legalization that we keep having to adjust because of the <laughs> way <laughs> the conversation around federal legalization is currently happening. Um, and obviously, you know, federal legalization is going to be catalytic to this market uh, in some respects in ways that we can't even be begin to predict. Um, but but we, we understand that right now, most stakeholders in the market really focused on the, the near-term, real-time kind of realities on the ground, which are states continuing to activate these markets, states continuing to grow quite, quite robustly in an increasingly competitive uh, environment where consumers are enthusiastically embracing the offerings of the legal market. So going from $27 billion in 2021 to $32 billion in 2022 does assume pretty healthy double-digit growth. Um, does the early commentary coming out of earnings season from the cannabis companies give you any pause on that? It might be too much to say that cannabis is recession-proof, but it's certainly res recession-resilient. Res we have seen through the last couple of cycles where there's been an economic squeeze that consumers, uh, rather than ending their spending um, or stopping to spend on cannabis, will do one of two things. They'll either shift to value products or they'll revert to the illicit, uh, to the illicit unregulated markets um, where you can avoid uh, uh, taxes, particularly for flower consumers where there's a pretty um, comparable product available in the unregulated market. This economic cycle feels like it could, could potentially be different. The um, shocks coming out of both the developments in Europe, the, the potential supply chain disruptions now that uh, China's shutting down um, um, major cities like Shenzhen, we think could, could potentially bring together the worst two economic kind of disruptors that we've seen in a, in, in a while, particularly given the broader inflationary environment. That said, what we're anticipating is, particularly for the new states that are activating, there's going to be a lot of, there's going to be time to, be, to, to adjust their pricing to reflect the realities of the ground by the time they're coming online. So here we're looking very closely at New York, New Jersey, and Virginia as markets that are going to be, um, that we expect to see very strong uh, growth out of. The consumer data we're seeing out of those states suggests that consumers are ready for it as soon as the, the market is ready. Um, the challenge, I think, for the large operators in particular is, can they price their products appropriately? Um, we have seen that the illicit market has become phenomenally adaptive to uh, market conditions in some respects, even more so, or the illicit market is more agile than the, than the legal market. So our caution to, to the major primes in particular is um, be prepared particularly to start serving this value segment and, and um, uh, understand how the broader macro climate is going to affect consumers' ability to spend. The willingness is there, but the ability to spend is going to be critical. Absolutely. And I mean, look, New York has such a well-developed illicit marketplace, and that's only, I think, going to exacerbate the problem when you have so much excess supply on, on the West Coast. You know, we've heard t companies talking about, you know, disruption to their businesses in Maine um, because of, of the illicit marketplace. But I think it, it is a good um, call out, you know, that the company 
companies should be cognizant of price gap management um, in terms of dislocating because, you know, I walk around New York City and there's, you know, these vans, you know, fully branded. There's now storefronts that are fully branded and there's no enforcement. So I don't know what the incentive is um, to shut that down and hopefully redirect consumers into into the legal channels. But I think the, the companies are going to have their work cut out for them to do that. So we've covered New York and New Jersey, which is is great. Is as you're thinking about next key state opportunities, which ones are front of mind for you? We think that the the next three big states to pay close attention to are going to be Florida and Pennsylvania on the recreational side and Texas on the medical side. Both Florida and Pennsylvania have been having this debate for a long time. The, the public support is absolutely there, um, but because of quirks in their respective uh, policy and legal uh, legislative environments, um, they haven't been able to quite do it yet. Uh, we think they're important just because of the sheer size of the markets. If if those both flip, then you know those become catalytic to that additional twenty billion in revenue that we're expecting uh, through year in twenty thirty. Um, Texas is an interesting one. We think that. Um, one, it's a massive market. We, we think that the government data does underreport the level of demand in the state. And Oklahoma, now that Oklahoma's program is so expansive and is, is drawing so many Texas consumers uh, into the state, um, that it's, it's driving that conversation with momentum in a way that uh, we're, we're pretty bullish that over the next couple of years, we'd, we'd like to see uh, the Texas legislator finally take this on. I tell you, yeah, it's a very good call out on on Oklahoma. I can't believe that 12% of the population is registered as a medical cannabis patient. Like we've never seen anything like that. I mean, that's multiples ahead of like a Florida at 4% and change, right? Or a Pennsylvania. Part of the reason why that Oklahoma number is so important is to us, it it underscores in a way that we've never seen before the scale of pent up demand. Mm -hmm. So... Oklahoma is the first state where you've had more medical patients register for a program than there are self-admitted cannabis consumers on the government study on. So the, the, on the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, which is essentially the country's gold standard for drug use, um, only 8% of Oklahomans admit consuming cannabis. So um, clearly there are more... There's a massive disconnect in the data. And so we've tried kind of modeling to a, a, a account for the fact that in these very um, prohibition aggressive markets that there is this underreporting, underaccounting, and Oklahoma, if it's any indication, that uh, is, is a good illustration of just how, that, how large those numbers could be um, when you look across the South and across the Midwest. Um, but yeah, very, very interesting market to watch. Absolutely. I mean, we, we rely so heavily on that NSDUH data. I mean, I can't do a annual survey that has an N of 70,000 people, right, right. but I always caveat when I talk to investors. I'm like, these are the people who are willing to admit to the federal government that they're using a Schedule One controlled substance. Um, and yeah, you're right. Oklahoma is a very interesting case study in terms of that, that disconnect. Um, So let's stick with the consumer then. So clearly there's a lot of consumer demand, perhaps even more than than the government data would suggest. Can we like peel the onion back a little bit? Like, do you have any insights in terms of consumer demographics, age, income? Like, what are you seeing in terms of the evolution of the cannabis consumer? So so one of the things that all of this new data that we're now accruing has been able to, to show us is one really affirmative of this idea that Cannabis use transcends American society. You know, there's, there's, um, it, it is about as 
multi-spectral uh, representation of American society, uh, as you can see and, and uh, as you can find. Now, obviously, you know, there, there's some things that are inherent to the market. It skews younger, it skews male. Uh, but even some of those differences are starting to erode. Um, you know, this this used to be a, let's um, uh, say, 65-35 male-female split. You're seeing usage increase dramatically amongst women. It used to skew very young, but some of the fastest uh, growth in use is amongst older consumers. And so there's this kind of normalization that's happening. You know, yes, it will continue to be uh, largely younger uh, and perhaps slightly more male than female consumers. But broadly speaking, there's a huge cross-section of America that consumes cannabis, and we think therein lies the opportunity. The early stages of this market focus primarily on the young male heavy consumer. And um, what we're finding uh, is as cannabis are using data to more effectively define the product offerings, identify the target audiences, and build resonant products for those groups, um, that, that there's really rich opportunity through kind of segmented, targeted um, uh, customer acquisition, customer, customer profiling. Um, we're also seeing really dramatic shifts both in consumption behaviors, uh, the drivers of use, and, and uh, what products consumers are using to inform their, their, their to, to, to align with their product needs. So first, you know, we've seen the share of flower fall dramatically. You know, nationally across all of the point of sale data we're looking at, uh, across the country, flower is now below 50% of the product being sold with the value added products um, uh, accounting for the balance. Um, two, we're seeing a shift away from, even amongst the hardcore consumers who were flower purists, they're now supplementing their use with value-added products, adding edibles, adding uh, topicals and tinctures, which to us indicates two things. One, more conscious um, and more intentional use. Um, and so, you know, the, the joint that you might have uh, in, in a social setting or, or uh, before, you, you know, before doing yoga will be different than a product that you might consume, say a, a pill or a tincture that you take before you go to bed. And so consumers are thinking a lot more intentionally uh, around what they're using and why. Um, and, and that's creating very significant opportunities for product supplementation. Right? So. You know, that, that insight really resonates with me because I think it just speaks to the evolution of the consumer more broadly, not necessarily the cannabis consumer, because we see the exact same thing in beverage alcohol and we see it in tobacco. Polyuse consumption that is occasion-based is evident in all three categories. Um, the, the gender call-out is really interesting too. I remember, you know, very early days in, in our cannabis work. You know, I was, you know, speaking at beer conferences about cannabis, and then talking, you know, speaking at cannabis conferences and making, you know, alcohol analogies. And one of the things I, you know, was very consistent in in saying to the cannabis audience: Please don't make the mistake of beer. Do not create a category that alienates female consumers. Because the reason beer has been losing so much market share is because the category alienated females and so they feel more comfortable in, in wine and spirits. But I, I do think to your point that the innovation that we're seeing really reflects a consciousness of how wide um, the addressable market you know, could and should be, for sure. 
We think that the opportunity for female con to target female consumers is absolutely massive, and candidly, we think um, the industry has not yet capitalized on what we think is, is a phenomenal opportunity. Um, and part of that is, and we've talked a little, we've talked a little bit about this offline. This idea that we need to shift away from this idea of non-medical cannabis use being recreational. Um, we have found in our consumer data that almost all cannabis use has a has a wellness bent to it. And from that framing, then it changes the way you think about who's consuming and why. Um, recreational tends to suggest, you know, social um, um, kind of the quote unquote party context, um, which fits in very well with alcohol narrative. Um, but when you think that, you know, the top reasons that are driving um, most cannabis use, even amongst non-medical patients, are relaxation, managing stress, reducing anxiety, improving sleep outcomes, managing pain, um, as, as being kind of the top five or six uh, reasons for use, um, then it changes that orientation of, all right, so, so how do you serve consumers who aren't looking for the, a party drug, but are actually looking for something that will improve the health and wellness outcomes? Um, and so, for example, just even the idea of, of um, the women we've been speaking to in our research um, around things like products that can help them deal with um, um, feminine health issues, menstrual cramps, um, uh, the, the, the uh, products that can be used to improve intimacy outcomes. Um, the, the opportunity is absolutely massive, and the consumers who are starting to use some of these products on the market are, are raving about them, but they remain a minuscule category in the market. Um, so there's, there's, we think, very, very significant outcomes, um, whether it is to support the kind of quote the, the so-called soccer mom who's looking for an alternative to her glass of wine, um, to, to the um, uh, older or the more mature female consumer who are never going to smoke a joint. You know, the, the arthritis is going to prevent them from rolling a joint. Um, uh, I think there's a great deal of opportunity to, to, to consider um, not only what outcomes that they're seeking, but what product form aligns with them, building brands that actually resonate with them, building community that allows them to share their experiences that remains very, very fertile ground for the industry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the intersectionality, again, like is really just so striking to me because in global tobacco, Philip Morris, British American tobacco, Imperial tobacco, and Altria, all now are talking about cannabis, but they're being very careful about, especially for, for the international, um, multinational operators, where it is really a very narrow lane and it is entirely focused um, on, on health and wellness. Well, speaking of intersectionality, we're at South by Southwest. There is a lot going on. It's my first time. I'm finding the whole experience just so enriching. How's your experience been? It's been incredible. My first time as well. Um, you know, somebody told me or described it to me as a burning man, but in Austin without the dust. And it's, <laughs> it's actually proving to be a, a lot of that. So far, my experience has been about serendipity. Just the number of random conversations I've happened to have with people who are brilliant in their respective fields, not just in cannabis, but you know, I've met a couple of random technologists, um, just had an incredible conversation with a political candidate. Um, the, the energy here has been phenomenal. And I think particularly having been feeling like I've been in the hinterlands for the past couple of years because of COVID, um, what a way to come back. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> into the social <laughs> social world. Um, truly a, a wonderful experience. Oh, I'm so happy to hear it. Same here. This is Vivian Azer, Cowan's Beverages, Tobacco, and Cannabis Analyst. Thank you, John. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.